Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. This is our City on a Hill teaching series. And if you're new with us, we welcome you on this morning. You picked a Sunday, a really great Sunday, to come and check uh, Desert Breeze out. We're going to talk about sex. (laughs) Love and lust is is the title of this weekend's message. And uh, so we have been, uh, really the key verse for this series is, Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's Matthew 5.16. So God wants us to live in such a way that people would be drawn to him through our lives. And of course, through this series, Jesus makes it pretty clear that people's lives that are gripped by God's grace will be different. We will live different kind of lives. And those different kind of lives will direct people to him to bring glory to him. And that involves every area of our lives, including our sexuality. And we come to... uh, Kind of that hot topic here in verses 27 through 32, we'll be reading that in just, uh, just a moment or so, but I want to remind you of what grace is, God's grace, because the basis of our uh, living different kind of lives, it's, it's based on grace, the grace of God. What is, what is grace? What is God's grace to us? In fact, this is what separates Christianity from all the major religions of our world today. If you don't understand grace, you don't understand Christianity. God's grace is his presence in our lives, empowering us to be what he wants us to be and to do what he wants us to do. In God's grace, God gives us nothing less than himself. And as he's in our lives, as we interact with him, as we have this relationship with him, he transforms our lives. So people's lives gripped by God's grace will live different kind of lives and, and we're looking at what that and how Jesus is defining those different kind of lives in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, there's a major difference between obeying God to achieve salvation. That's really all the major religions of our world today, works righteousness, versus obeying God in gratitude for receiving salvation. Major difference. One's a, as we said last week, one's a works righteousness. This is a faith righteousness based on God's grace. And uh, so we're going to talk about this morning love and lust. Sexual desire is good, except when it's bad. So we'll look at when it's good and when it's bad. Sex is a whole heart issue. It's a whole life issue, one that our culture has made really only physical, an appetite, and the consequences are devastating. So we're going to dive into that in just a moment. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll look at our text and unpack this this study. Father God, we, we know this is a very delicate topic that carries with it a lot of baggage. And so we pray this morning that you would teach us how we can live for your glory in this area of our sexual desires, particularly in this sex-saturated society that we live in. Father, we know that you're not a restrictor, but you're a liberator, and your, your instruction to us comes from your infinite wisdom and perfect love. 
So help us to see more clearly that in your goodness, you want to protect us from the worst and provide the very best for us. Fullness of life is what you came to give to us, Jesus. We thank you for that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. And we begin reading chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go go into hell. And then verses 31 and 32, he talks about divorce, and I, I really believe it goes along with this whole idea. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, pretty heavy-duty topic. You guys ready? Okay, get ready to fill in the blanks because we're going to run hard and fast through these. There's quite a number of uh, fill-in-the-blanks. And so this is what we're looking at. Here's the three big ideas of the message this morning, the sanctity of sex. We'll talk about that. Then we'll talk about the struggle of lust. And then we'll wrap up our time by talking about the satisfaction of love. Those three big ideas. Here's the first one. Sanctity of sex, verse 21. Once again, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Let's talk about that. What is the biblical... Ethics for sexuality and for marriage. What does the Bible say? Well, here's what it says. It's pretty clear. In fact, the Bible begins in Genesis 2, chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And the man and woman were naked and unashamed. So there's kind of this process that he talks about here. But here's your fill in the blank. Sex is for a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Bible's real clear about that. And you can see that uh, really from cover to cover. Here's the next thought. And, th- and so we got to ask the question, so what is a covenant relationship? A covenant relationship is, uh, is a relationship or a covenant is a relationship that is far more loving than merely a legal relationship. So, okay, big deal. You guys have a... Uh, marriage license, and it is a big deal, but that's just kind of the, that's like first base, that's kind of elementary. It's more than that. So a covenant relationship is is far more loving than merely a legal relationship, and check this out, and far more binding and enduring than merely an emotional relationship. So there's greater level of commitment than just something that's kind of emotional. He or she makes me feel good about myself. It goes much deeper than that. And that's what covenant means. Divorce should never even be in your vocabulary. Okay. And that's what he's saying, unless there's some really serious issues going on. And and the Bible does give us a couple different allowances for divorce within certain circumstances. And one obviously in this text would be uh, adultery. Now, and and you certainly need to walk through that with a counselor as you, as you kind of navigate that. But, uh, 
but, but it's important to understand this idea. And by the way, if you want to learn a little bit more, much of these insights I, I got from Timothy Keller from his book, The Meaning of Marriage. A lot of great insight, The Meaning of Marriage. Good book. In fact, we've had a class where we've actually gone through that book and uh, some good stuff there. But to really understand covenants, let me read covenant again. A covenant is a relationship that is far more loving than merely a legal relationship and far more binding and enduring than merely an emotional relationship. Now, let's define covenant. To understand covenant, you need to have an idea of covenant in comparison to consumer. Now, let me ask you this. When it comes to relationships, when it comes to marriage, which one would best, do you think, just off the top of your head, would best represent our society? Covenant, covenant or consumer? Consumer, yeah. I was spitting all over myself there. That's why I backed off from the front row. Just, that's, yeah, I just don't want to be blowing any chunks here this morning, though I didn't, uh, didn't have much to eat here. Oh, you didn't like that, did you? I'm sorry. Back on our notes here. Here we go. So the difference between a covenant and a consumer, here it is. In a covenant relationship, the relationship is more important than my needs. So when you have a covenant, you're saying, hey, the relationship is more important than my needs. I'll adjust to you because I made a promise. To where a consumer relationship, my needs are more important than the relationship. So my needs are more important than the relationship. You adjust to me. So, so in some of our relationships, it's totally appropriate to have consumer relationships, such as our grocer. Would you agree with that? So if you find a new grocer because the, uh, the quality has dropped and the cost has increased, find another grocer. You're not committing adultery, okay? So you don't have a covenant relationship with your grocer. But, but that has moved into the area of our marriage relationships. Hey, I can find a better deal over here. Higher quality, lower cost. That's consumer. You adjust to me. If I don't get what I want, I'm out of here. So that's so you can kind of see the difference between between the two, and uh, and in fact, if you if one person is covenant and the other is consumer, so you got a, a married couple, one's more covenant, the other's consumer. It's very ex, exploitative. It's just it's you're, the one that's more consumer is going to be using the one that's more covenant. So you need, you're going to have to have a talk. You're going to have to work together. Otherwise, it's not a really a good, balanced relationship. Now, I need to drive this home a little bit more here because in our society today, we, we tend to be very consumer. And I hear people oftentimes say, uh, we fell in love. And then the next thing you talk to them and they say, we, we're not in love anymore. Almost as if you can fall in and out of love. How many have heard that? You guys have heard that from friends before? We're just not in love anymore. And it's doubtful that they really even understand what love is, okay? And so you don't fall in and out of love. Love is a commitment. It's a choice. It's a decision that you make. You don't fall in and out of that. Um, It's saying, I will be there no matter what. That's covenant. It's how God loves us. And the cross proves that. You guys tracking with me? See, God has a, we have a covenant relationship with God. In fact, I'm going to show you how much I love for you. I'm dying for you. I'm bridging the gap that separated you from me. And I'm going to do everything I can to bring you close to me. So that's, that's covenant love. That's covenant relationship. So now, now that we've got the, the understanding of covenant, we need to talk about sex. And sex inside of marriage is a covenant renewal ceremony. It's right there on your notes that produces, and there's three things that it produces, but I need to talk to you about this covenant renewal ceremony. It's going to give you a whole new language 
to making love to your spouse, okay? Because the next time you want to make love, just say, hey, it's time for our covenant renewal ceremony. So write that down, guys. Covenant renewal ceremony. It's, it's, you know, you're going to have to kind of be a little more romantic in saying that, but uh, nobody else will know unless you attend Desert Breeze. Oh, we know what they're going to be doing. Covenant renewal ceremony. Woohoo! I like that. And so uh, a covenant renewal ceremony, why, would, why is that language used here? It's because a covenant renewal ceremony means that there's an outward, it's an outward symbol. And this is real important. It's an outward symbol of an internal reality. And we're going to do uh, really a covenant renewal ceremony, not like this, but another kind, at the end of this service, and it's called communion. And it's, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. And we actually do these two of these church ordinances. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what the second church ordinance is, that it's a covenant renewal ceremony that we do here at Desert Breeze. Most Christian churches will do it. One is communion. The other one would be what? Anybody want to yell it out to me? Baptism, yeah, water baptism. So, so it's a covenant renewal ceremony, baptism and communion, and, and it's, a, it's a commitment apparatus, so to speak. So sex within the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman is a, is a c- commitment apparatus. And in essence, what you're saying is this, I belong completely and exclusively to you. So when you have a sexual relationship between a husband and wife and you're defining it as a covenant renewal ceremony, you're saying, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And that will produce stability, or security, stability, and satisfaction. First of all, security. Let's talk about that. Now, when my wife and I were first married, she told me that she felt like she was walking around on eggshells. And that was the last thing I wanted her to feel because it creates an insecurity. She was very much guarded wearing masks because she thought that if she said the slightest little thing, it would put me over the edge and I would be upset. And, and so that kind of a relationship creates some insecurity. Therefore, with that insecurity, you don't have a great degree of intimacy. If I don't feel safe with you and you don't feel safe with me, I'm not going to open up to you. You're not going to open up to me. And that's how it was in our relationship. And so she didn't feel very secure, but the more secure she felt... In this relationship, uh, she could finally be herself. She could finally share her heart with me, and it, and it created greater degree of intimacy, therefore greater degree of, of satisfaction in the relationship. She could get rid of the facade. Because in a consumer relationship, you're always performing, always marketing, always selling. And uh, you can't really be yourself. You're always afraid, ah, you know, if I, if I say the wrong thing, they're out of here. And so, ah, oh, I can't be. And so this whole idea of covenant and covenant renewal ceremony is that it creates security, but also creates stability. Freedom from the emotional roller coaster. Your relationship is not based on your emotion. You're not falling in and out of love. You've made a choice. You've made a commitment. You're going until you're, you die. Or you kill each other, one or the other. But, uh, but I mean, it's just, you're just, you're going all out. You're going all out for that, and it creates stability. Now, let me explain to you the difference between uh, a marriage relationship that the couple has, each person in this marriage relationship has character versus someone that doesn't have character. Someone who lacks character is someone whose behavior is the uh, byproduct 
of their emotions based on their circumstances. That's someone who lacks character. So, so their behavior, how they respond to life is based on their emotions, based on their circumstances. Byproduct, emotions, circumstances. A person that has character is someone whose behavior is the result of choices that they make based on their values. It's not their circumstances or their feelings. It's just, I'm going to make a choice. This is important to me. I love you. And in, in, in this covenant renewal ceremony, I belong completely and exclusively to you and you to me. And I've made that choice. And right now, our marriage relationship isn't going too, so good. But you know what? I'm here. And I'm going to fight through this because I love you. And so that what that does is that when both of you are working together like that creates some, some security and then stability. And oh my goodness, the satisfaction that that brings in time, in time. If you're committed to someone in spite of your feelings, deeper feelings will grow. And if you were to ask me, Pastor Ray, do you remember when you first uh, kissed Nancy? And I would say, no, that was too long ago. I'm getting really old. No, actually, I do really remember it. I mean, I remember it's like, wow, it feels like it was just yesterday. It was like 37 years ago. And uh, I remember, and man, whoo, ah, that was, that was hot. She was hot. Whoo, (laughs) sent me right through the ceiling. We were outside on our front porch. And so, and if you were to say, so do you still have that same feeling when you kiss her now? And I would say, no. It's much better. It's much richer. It's much deeper. See, that, that first kiss was all about me. Woo, she's into me. <laughs> it's, it's all ego. It's all ego. You know, she's stroking my ego. I feel good about myself. But now it's much deeper. It's much richer. It's more about her. It's about, about her needs. How can I be there for her? See, you can have a one-night stand with a lot of with a lot of passion, but there's a much deeper passion when you commit your life to someone and you're willing to die for them and you're doing all that you can to meet their needs and to touch their life. And you do that over time and you get a couple decades behind you. Oh my goodness. You talk about the satisfaction. It's amazing. What uh, Rod and Rachel have right now is nothing compared to what my wife and I have and I, I'm sure it's good. Don't look over there. <laughs> They're blushing. I don't know if we'll put this one online for everybody to hear. Okay, maybe we will. Okay. So, so there we go. Um, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about, yeah, where, where were we with this? Okay. Okay, here's the next point on your notes. Sex outside of marriage creates personal dissonance. So we talked about sex inside of marriage is covenant renewal ceremony, security, stability, satisfaction. Sex outside of marriage creates personal dissonance and undermines the infrastructure of the relationship. So let's talk about that in 1 Corinthians. You might want to write this down in the column there. 1 Corinthians 6.18. Actually, I think I have some of those verses up there. In fact, uh, somewhere on the notes. But 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says, it says, flee from sexual immorality. It says, run from it. Why? Because all other sin is outside, outside the body. But when you sin sexually, you sin against your body. Literally, it's saying you sin against yourself. You sin against your person. There's a a scattering and a shattering of your personhood, of your soul. So there's a dissonance. So so 
personal dissonance? What does that mean? There's a disharmony, yes, because it's giving someone your body without giving them your spirit and soul. That's why it creates within you. You were meant when you connect with someone, the man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's talking about, it's talking about spirit, soul, and then body. But you give the body apart from spirit, soul creates a dissonance within you and it also undermines the infrastructure of the relationship. See, sex is meant to be a token of how you have already given your whole life to them. So, so in connecting, the first thing you're to connect spiritually, the word, uh, there's, there's three primary words for the word love and this is where you need to be connecting in a marriage relationship. You start spiritually. You start spiritually with agape love because your, your intent, your desire is that you would help each other to know God better. Let your light shine before men so that they, they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's how we live our life. In such a way that after you've interacted with me, you want to know the God that I know. So that's that spiritual connection. And then from that, you build and you have a soul connection. So you have phileo, which is friendship kind of love. So you begin to cultivate a friendship relationship. By the way, the message that I gave at their wedding yesterday was that the goal of a marriage relationship is that as a couple, you become best friends with the goal of helping each other love Jesus more than we love each other. Because if we love Jesus more than we love each other, we will love each other well because we will love each other like Jesus loved us. He loved us with a sacrificial love. And so that would be that phileo that I become my wife's best friend that would not only help her, I mean, that I would help to to bring a sense of wholeness and help her to love Jesus more than she loves me. So you got spirit, agape love, unconditional love, kind of love that God loves us with. And then you got got, uh, spirit, soul is friendship love. And then from that, you've got eros, which is the connecting of your body. And that's really the order that it should go. But if you take the physical, the eros, it's going to distort and mess up the spirit, soul, and it creates all sorts of problems in your relationship. It has been said that when you fall in love, you lose about 50% of your brains. I mean, how, how many have ever seen that? You see, you know, someone's really down, and all of a sudden you see them, and they, got like a, they have a little skip to their walk, and they're really happy, and they're delighted, and, and then you find out that they're in love. It's like, ooh, they're on cloud nine, and they've lost 50% of their brains. And, and, and seriously, how many of you have ever seen that before? Show of hands? Yeah. Now, if falling in love, you lose 50% of your brains. If falling in love involves also falling into bed, you will lose the other 50%. Seriously. I mean, it, it becomes a major, a major issue after that. I mean, you have, you have no more rationality anymore. You're not, you're not rational because this person, we make each other feel really, really good. And so what that does is that undermines the infrastructure of relationship because a relationship, really, if it's going to be healthy, is built on communication, conflict resolution, and compatibility. Those are just three. And then character, as I talked and defined earlier. But if you don't have that... Yeah, for a season, you might be making each other feel good, but the the tendency is to think that you're really doing good when in reality you're not doing good and it's just a matter of time. You're going to come crashing down and you don't have the infrastructure to support the relationship. Now listen to me. This is coming from a guy that's very happily married. And um, 
It's not a great sex life that makes for a great marriage. It's a great marriage that makes for a great sex life. It's, a, it's the infrastructure. It's communication and conflict resolution and compatibility and me and her being best friends and we're pointing each other to Jesus and as our hearts are filled up more and more with Jesus, then our lives overflow to one another and oh my goodness, what an amazing relationship that is. And that's what God has in store for us. That's the model that God has given us here. And that's why we have... This verse, once again, Genesis 2, 24 through 25. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And the man and woman were both naked and unashamed. That's wild. Unbelievable. Now, I heard someone say that... uh, Where did I have it here? They said that... uh, Oh, getting married for sex is like buying a 747 for the peanuts. <laughs> and so if, you're, if your relationship is just based on sex, eros, you're missing the, you're missing the, yeah, so you have to think about that. Mm, yeah, it's messed up, isn't it? Uh, that's why cohabitation undermines the future prospects of healthy, strong relationships. Statistics actually prove that out. Because what you are in cohabitation is more consumer. You're actually fostering and encouraging more of a consumer kind of relationship. Now, let me give you a couple quotes. These guys really help us to understand what I just talked about here. And one is by John White from his book, Eros Defile. It's a great book. I read it a number of years ago. And, uh, and this is what he says. Immediate erotic thrill is the most superficial benefit of the sex act. The bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies it can be both profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing. It is the healing, concrete sign of what is happening in the whole relationship, the uncovering of our inner selves, our deepest fears and yearnings. As I look tenderly on the body of another and as I experience what it is to feel the tenderness of another's caress, then the one who accepts and touches my most intimate body and caresses it Uh, with tenderness caresses also my inmost being or so it seems when all is right so it only makes sense that sexual relations be confined to marriage for mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of a moment but the delicate fabric of a lifetime's weaving each time sex springs from casual encounter physical disclosure and touching some of its life giving and healing nature is destroyed that's John White Eros defiled and here's C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity he says the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of tasting without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity. So those guys have uh, certainly a great deal of insight. And I, I know this is very counterintuitive for our culture. And I know some of you are out there like, what? I've never heard that before. Everybody pretty much, you move in together, you have sex, that's usually the first thing. And, and I understand that. I understand that. This seems so opposite 
of the way our culture is going. And let me just, let me just say this to you. Um, is our culture going in a good direction? Do you think it's really healthy out there? Are relationships really good out there? Are we really staying together and working out really good relationships? No, I would, I would say no. I would say no. And, I, and I'm telling you that you have a daddy in heaven, your father God who loves you and sent his son down to this earth to die for you. And he's got a better way. He's got an amazing way. He loves you. And his directives come from his infinite wisdom and, and his perfect love for you. He's not a restrictor, believe me. He's a liberator. He wants you to experience the most freedom you've ever experienced and only be found in him and through him and, and by following him. That's the fullness of life. Jesus said he came to give to us. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. So, so I understand. I understand our society. I understand our culture. There's a lot of things that we grapple with here at Desert Breeze. We're straight up about it. We're glad you're here this morning, and we have, we have no apologies here when we study God's word, but that's, that's really what God's, God's word has to say to us. Now, now, in that, would you say that God has a, and a lot of people say, well, God has a low view, low view of sex. I would say that he actually has a very high view of sex, but a lot of people say it's low, but I, I, I say it's very high. In fact, let's just say that maybe if you had, you were an art dealer, you had an art gallery, out downtown Phoenix, out on the sidewalk. So you put some of your art pieces out on the sidewalk. People could come up and look and touch and look at them. But then let's just say that you came across this piece of art that was very ancient. It was worth millions of dollars. Would you put that out on the sidewalk in front of everybody for them to touch and take and do it with it, whatever they wanted to? No, you'd put it back in a back room somewhere, cover it up and maybe only let a few people even look at it, but don't touch it. I don't want it to deteriorate. I don't want it to go bad. And, and, that, and what would you say about that? That art dealer and that person that owned that art gallery, would you say that they have a high view of art or a low view of art? I'd say that they have a very high view. God has a very high view of our sexuality, of our personhood. That's the reason why we, we have these very candid talks here, and these are important for us. So here, let's talk about the struggle of lust. So that's the, that's the sanctity of sex. So, so it's very very high view. That's what it means by sanctity. As opposed to our world today, it, it's really more profane, which means more common. And God has a very sacred, and a, it's really a very high view. Now, here's the next one, the struggle of lust, uh, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we're going to have to talk about that. But first of all, let's talk about the Bible. The Bible has a very high view of sexual desire within marriage. That's your fill in the blank. In fact, the Bible can be very uncomfortable for the prudish when it comes to sex. In fact, what I'm about to read may make some of you blush, okay? And it gives us, I mean, there's this exuberant, direct rejoicing in the glory of, of sexual pleasure in scripture. For instance, in Genesis 21 and 25, just, uh, I took two of those verses, but if you were to read the context of those verses, what you have at the very beginning of the Bible is that you have a, a, make, a, a naked man singing rapturous love songs to a naked woman in front of God, and that's how the Bible begins. Really? I'm going to read this book. <laughs> this is a good book. It's like, whoa. I mean, you, when, when, when uh, Eve shows up and he sings this song, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that's a love song. He's like, whoa, babe, 
bad. <sighs> Hold me back. I mean, that's, uh, that's what he's saying. He's just like overwhelmed, and God's right there. And so, and then you read a little bit further. I mean, there's a, just a lot of different places. I found this quite interesting in Genesis 26, 8. Uh, Isaac lies about his wife, Rebecca, says, hey, she's my sister. And then the king happens to see them. In fact, one translation says that they are sporting. <laughs> There's a new phrase for you. He's sporting with her? It's sporting like he's, he, yeah, he's treating her like you wouldn't treat your sister, okay? And, and that's the idea that you get here in that text and he said hey she's not your sister i saw what you were doing so it's kind of interesting and then and then here's 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 one of my favorite verses right here proverbs five nineteen. see if you can guess why rejoice in the wife of your youth let her breast fill you at all times with delight don't don't look at each other right now Let's take that one phrase, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Let's just kind of break, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. Be intoxicated always in her love. Pastor Ray, you're not one of those uh, fundamentalists that takes the Bible literally. Well, sometimes there's an advantage to taking the Bible literally. I mean, I mean that's, that's, that, that's embarrassing. Find delight in her breast. I like that verse. And then, uh, and then you got the Song of Solomon. Don't dare, don't dare turn there right now, okay? It's too provocative. I mean, you got this extended celebration of sexual love between a husband and wife. And, and you had to be a certain age even to, be, to read that because it was so provocative. And then you've got the verse like 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. This is another great verse. You know, see, nobody's sleeping through this message today. I mean, it's like, whoa, what is he talking about here? Check this out, 1 Corinthians 7. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So, you know, so I tell my wife regularly, your body is mine. Take all your clothes off. And then I, I probably shouldn't have said that, but, uh, <laughs> but then she says, because if you read on, she says, well, your body is mine. Keep your clothes on <laughs> and get in there and do some housework because that's when you are, that's when you're the sexiest. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, limited time, (laughs) that you may devote yourselves to prayer. You've been praying a lot, honey. Time to stop praying. (laughs) It's time for our covenant renewal ceremony. Praise God, Pastor Ray gave me new terminology. (laughs) I am so excited. Now listen to what he says on. He goes on, he says, 
He says, devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the Bible's I mean, straight up, straightforward about this stuff. I, mean, I love the Bible. I love God's word. It just speaks to right where we live. And so, I mean, so the, so the Bible gives us a very high view of sexual desire. So let's talk about this whole idea of lust. There's, there's a difference between thoughts entering your head and entertaining of those thoughts. So you can have thoughts enter your head, but you've got to be careful. So that's why it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, it, uh, it says, take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Jesus Christ. And you guys know that our thoughts have a major impact on our lives. And then Philippians 4.8, it says, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. So we've got to be careful about our thoughts. As a person thinks within himself, then so is he out of the... Uh, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23. So Martin Luther put it this way. You can't stop birds from flying over your head. I haven't finished, okay? (laughs) I know. But you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. It's easy for me, huh? Some of you guys were looking at me like that. But so so you're going to have bad thoughts. You're going to have thoughts that are going to come in and you go, oh my goodness, you have no idea what I was just thinking. No, I don't want to know what you were thinking. <laughs> but are you dwelling on that? Are you entertaining that? What are you entertaining? What is dominating your thoughts? That's what's important. That's, that's, that's where lust, that idea of lust comes in. And so sexual desire outside of marriage is selfish, addictive, and destructive. So let's talk about that. So, so we can actually define lust Lust is more about taking than giving. It's more about taking sexual pleasure uh, than giving your whole self. So it's, I want your body, but I don't want any other part of you. I want to have, you know, sexual desire satisfied, but I don't want to make a commitment to you. We, I want to live together, but I don't want you know, we're not going to share paychecks. We're not going to do any of that. We're not, no, we're not going to get married. And what a person says when they say that is that, hey, I'm, I'm, ho- I'm holding out for better option that might come along or I'm unwilling to make that level of commitment when you say that. Because a lot of times people say, well, we don't need to have a piece of paper for the, uh, commitment. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Because that's just kind of, that's just foundational. That's like square one. You're not even square one yet. You don't even know what covenant love is. You don't really don't know what love is if... If, if uh, you're saying those kind of things, you don't know really what it means to give of yourself completely. And so lust would be outside of that. In fact, he uses a word, it's called lustful intent. It's an interesting word. He could have used a lot of different words. It's found in verse 28 of our text. Epithumia, it's the same word that's used for idolatry and usually used for greed. So there's a lot of similarities. It's just a, it's a, uh, just kind of a hyper desire. It's a, it's a sexual desire that's moved outside of the boundaries of, of, of marriage between a man and a woman means to have a desire for, long for, to covet. So lust is looking for deep soul satisfaction in sex that, that only God can give to us. And, and it's very selfish. Um, what, it, what it does is it, it turns multidimensional image bearers of God into pieces of meat for our consumption. And of course, porn and masturbation would be the epitome of this. because You don't even have a person there. By the way, it's, it's a big problem for women as much as it is for, for men, too. It's becoming more and more. Porn is becoming a major problem for women. Maybe you didn't know that. It's, more, it's becoming more and more appealing because they're doing more of a relational element to that. And by the way, porn is a real, real 
bad thing in our society today. It's a multi-billion, billion-dollar industry. They make more money in porn than what is made in baseball, basketball, football, all the major sports combined. So, it's, so you can see that it's out of, really out of control. So this whole idea of it being very selfish. I had a friend of mine a number of years ago, and we were out hiking, and he had this gal that he lived with. And I asked him, and she, fortunately she wasn't around, because if she knew this, if she heard this, and if I would have known him better, I would have probably told her this. But I said, so you guys going to get married? He goes, are you kidding? She's just a sperm receptacle. And that's how I responded to I go, What? I was appalled. I didn't even know how to respond to him. I'm just using her. I'm waiting for, her, for a better opportunity to come along. That broke my heart. That's devastating. See, that's what, that's what lust does. It's about using. I'm going to use you up and, like a cigarette and throw you away when I'm finished. And I'll find something or someone else that's better. And it just... Uh, Creates major problems. Let me also just say, just very quickly here, and I know this is this is a tough topic, but it, this is for both men and women. Uh, don't idolize your body, but don't neglect your body. So there's a combination. So there's a tendency: we either idolize our body or we neglect our body. And so, maintain the balance. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I like what John Piper said: you want undistracted, undistracting attractiveness. You want to be attractive, but you want to be at undistracting. That's a, that's a good, I, I like the phrase there. And so don't make it harder for the opposite sex by how you dress. Don't make it about you. It's not about you. You're not here to make life about you. Make it about your Savior. Make it about his glory. And so, so don't contribute to the objectifying. That's what's happening is that you're, you're objectifying the other gender. And you're turning them into an object. And it's very selfish. And it's also ad- addictive. Uh, an addiction is dependence upon a substance or a person or a behavior that provides a temporary sense of well-being that you can't live without. So it becomes uh, very addicting. And by the way, that's the reason why if guys start getting into porn is that it, it, it draws them into further, deeper, stronger stuff. Because after a while, just the playboy doesn't work. I've got to get into penthouse and then I've got to get into something deeper and hardcore it gets into hardcore why because you're trying to satisfy a need that can't be satisfied in your sexuality in promiscuous sex it's only going to be satisfied in god and um and it's very addictive in its in its nature it is trying to get from romantic love only what you can get from Christ. In fact, just the belief that you can't be a whole person and have a happy life without sex is evident that you got lust working in your life The only thing you can look at and say, unless I have that, I can't be happy, is God. And then it's also destructive. Let me give you just some real quick stats on this. And I've talked about this in the past. If you want to study more on this, I did a teaching series over a year ago, two weeks on marriage, and went into more detail on this. But uh, premarital sex in America, how young Americans meet, mate, and think about marrying. Mark uh, Regeneris and Jeremy Euchre, Oxford University Press. And this is really an empirical book, a scientific book. And this is what they said. The vast majority of people who have sex outside of marriage, when asked why they are doing it, they say in order to keep the relationship going, which is a consumer approach. It's all about consumer. 
Another part of this book uh, deals with commonly held beliefs or myths that people believe what they believe about sex that aren't true. And here's one of the one that they hear all the time, that pornography won't affect your relationships. They hear that all the time. So they did some research on that. So here's scientific proof contrary to that. Pornography hurts everyone is what they said. Three things they prove empirically. People who use pornography have crushingly unrealistic expectations when it comes to physical appearance and sexual performance. Number two, a significant number of male porn users experience a diminished tolerance for the difficulties of real relationships and it shrinks the marriage pool for women. So guys are unwilling to work on the infrastructure because they just take what they want, move on. And so these guys really lack character. Uh, And then number three, all women are being forced to accommodate sexual behaviors and their appearances to the images and the style of pornography. So whether we realize it or not, the fashion industry is doing it, your boyfriend is doing it, other people are doing it. They're holding you to this, uh, your behavior and your appearance to these standards that have been established through pornography. And that's, it damages. If you want to study more on this, actually, Steve and Celeste Tracy, in their book, Forever and Always, The Art of Intimacy, authors of Mending the Soul, they go into it in more detail. It's really a great book that I read a, about a year ago. And so, so it's selfish, addictive, and destructive. Let's talk about the satisfaction of love. Let's kind of wrap this up here. How can we be delivered? Jesus is saying, take drastic measures to deal with this. I mean, did you find this kind of interesting? Because if, if you've never read the Bible before and then you read this passage and it says, if you lust, you're going to hell. I mean, that's kind of the idea that you get. It's like, whoa, the, those people are prudish. That whole Christianity, that's, yeah, you're going to hell if you lust. You almost get the idea that that's what he's saying. And it's much, it's much more than that. In fact, he says, you're going to, in fact, pluck out your eye. That sounds a little violent. Your eyes causing you to sin? Go to your toolbox, get a screwdriver out, and gouge it out. <laughs> Praise God, let's all do that right now. No, obviously, he's saying figuratively, it's metaphor. And he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I mean, if that was literal... Your pastor up here would be with no eyes and arms. I'd be like this. And probably no feet, too. I'd just be up here just like this. Because I'd figure out how to mess it up in some way. So here's what he's saying. Now listen to me. Everybody look up here. Everybody look up here. This is what he's saying. If you had any idea what I have in store for you, the heaven that awaits you and the heaven on earth that awaits you in following me. You will do everything you can. You will take drastic measures to remove those things that would keep you from me and experiencing all that I have for you, whether you're single or married. That's what he's saying. I mean, he's just like, that's pretty powerful stuff. There's a a guy that uh, I'm I'm sure maybe maybe you saw this, Aaron Lee Ralston. He survived a canyoneering accident in southeastern Utah, 2003, during which he amputated his own right forearm with a dull multi-tool in order to extricate himself from a dislodged boulder underneath which he had been trapped for five days and seven hours. Anybody remember that story? Oh, my goodness. He says, I'm going to die here. I'm going to just have to cut my arm off. And it, and it, it... preserved his life. After he freed himself, he had to rappel down a 65-foot sheer cliff face to reach safety. 
So when the Bible says, when he says, hey man, if you had any idea what I have in store for you, you're going you're gonna to take drastic measures to deal with this stuff. And he uses this, the idea of an eye speaks of our beliefs. The idea of the hand speaks of our behavior because it's our beliefs that lead to our behavior. So if your behavior is not right, you need to start thinking about your eye. What's, what's your perspective? What's your beliefs? Because it's your, it's your eye, your attitude that leads to your hand, your actions. So I'm just giving some really practical advice. What are you thinking? And where are you going? Don't go to those places. Quit Hanging out with those people. Do some things that will keep you from going down that path because I have got a much better path for you. That's what he's saying. Here's your next fill in the blank. Here's how we'll wrap it up and then we're gonna take communion. So sex outside of marriage points to hell. Gehenna is the word that he uses is where the garbage is burned so it's this unquenchable fire thirst. How many remember the story of the woman at the well? And it's interesting that he gets into this dialogue with her and he says, hey, I have water that you'll never be thirsty again. And she's thinking that he's thinking about the water there. But he says, no, this is much deeper. And in fact, go tell your husband. Because Jesus knew that she had been married five times. And in fact, she, was, she said, forget the marriage thing. I've tried it five times. It's not satisfying. I'm going to live with this guy though. She was still thinking that somehow she could satisfy her need within herself with a guy. And he's saying, listen, it's not going to be found in a guy. It's going to be found in me. I can satisfy you. And see, that's how it is. If you try to find that deep soul satisfaction outside of God, it's not going to be found out there. Whether you're single or married, it's not going to be found out there. It's only found in Jesus. Here's the next point. That's the idea. It points to hell. In other words, this unquenchable fire and thirst. It won't be quenched. And here's the next one. Sex inside of marriage points to heaven. The most rapturous love between a husband and wife is a dim glimpse of the satisfaction we can have in Christ. You take the best marriage on this planet earth and it's just a dim glimpse of what you and I can have in our relationship with God. Lust is looking for the deep soul satisfaction in sex that only God can give to us. Make Christ your one true love or you'll never know true love. That's, that's, that's what we're learning here. You will never be, here's your last fill in the blank, you will never be married well or single well until Christ is the love of your life. Now, now take it from a guy that's happily married. And this is what, it, it, took us, it took us a couple decades to figure this out. But if I don't love Jesus more than I love my wife, and if she doesn't love Jesus more than she loves me, we will crush each other under the weight of unrealistic expectations. That's a fact. We did it for many years. But if I help my wife love Jesus more than she loves me, more than she loves me, she will love me well. She will love me like Jesus loves me. And that's what God has called us to do. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to prepare our hearts for communion. Let's pray. Eyes closed, heads bowed. Let's just take a moment. I know in this room that there are people who who have really struggled in this area. I know that there are virgins that are saving themselves for marriage and I commend you for that do that by God's grace continue to do that I know that there are those that that have struggled with promiscuity in this area I know that there are those that are in this room that have been abused sexually I know that in this room that there are those that struggle with same-sex attraction and you've acted out on it and and some that haven't I know that there are married couples in this room that that have had a measure of fulfillment but Maybe now it's, you're just frustrated in this area of your life. I know that there are those in this room that have committed adultery 
And I know that there are those in this room that have been victims of adultery. I know that in this room there are those addicted to porn and masturbation, both men and women. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees brought a woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus and said, hey, the Old Testament says we need to stone her. What do you say? And then Jesus says some really profound stuff. He says, he is without sin, throw the first stone. And in essence, he was leveling the playing field. Basically, he was saying, all of us, all of us have sinned. All of us struggle. All of us have issues. I pray to God that Desert Breeze would be a place, a safe place where people that struggle with whatever it might be, that they could run into the arms of their Savior right here. He leveled the playing field. All of us struggle in our lives. All of us are desperate for our Savior. And then he says something really profound. He says, so where are your accusers to this woman caught in adultery? I mean, she had to have experienced amazing guilt and shame. He says, where are your accusers? And she says, I have none. And then he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And you'll notice that he didn't say, go and sin no more and I won't condemn you. He says, no, I won't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Therefore, from that, from the access you have to the Father through me, go and sin no more. I will give you the power to live the kind of life I've called you to live. It's through him. And oh God, help us to see that this morning. I pray that this morning as we come to you, that we see communion as a means of grace, that there is no sin that we've committed or sin that has been committed against us is a match for your restoring and redeeming grace. God, help us to see that the more we understand your grace, the less we will ever look at a person or a situation as hopeless. God, redeem us, restore us by your grace. Continue to work in our lives. We run into your arms of love this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. They're gonna be passing out the communion elements. Uh, Just hang on to them. They're double cups, so pull one out. Just hang on to it. Just think about what we've talked about here today. Jesus is here. He loves you. Run into his arms. No matter what you struggle with, He's built the bridge, the crosses, the the chasm that eternally separated us. He's done everything necessary to draw us to him, to bring us in, to, to restore us and to redeem our lives. I'll walk you through the process in just a few moments. These elements represent the cross of Jesus Christ. They represent, uh, when, we, when we look at the cross, we are reminded... We're reminded of this, uh, that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. So that eliminates any superiority, like, hey, I'm better than you. (laughs) We were so sinful, he had to die for us. So no superiority, that humbles us. But it also tells us, you don't stop there, it also tells us that we are more loved than we ever, ever dared to dream. He loved us so much, he wanted to die for us. And, And that... That, that eliminates any inferiority. Um, and it gives us a sense of humble confidence by his grace. On the cross, Jesus got down on one knee and proposed to us covenant love. He loves us. And so as we take these elements, 
That's what it represents. It represents his amazing grace. There is nothing on this planet, there's no other major religion or anything that even comes close to this understanding of grace. I mean, when you understand this grace, it revolutionizes you. It changes you completely. You're never the same as you begin to live more and more in the reality of his grace. And so as he was with his disciples the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this represents my body broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. This is a covenant renewal ceremony. This is this outward symbol of an internal reality that I have a relationship with God and he provided that for me and gives me by his presence everything that I need to transform my life as I continue to walk with him. That same night he took the cup, said this represents the new covenant. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. So God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the instruction from your word. So God, empower us with your presence to be the kind of people you want us to be, to do the kind of things you want us to do for your glory. May we let our light shine before men so that we may, so that people will see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Next week, we continue our study through Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk about integrity, lying, and we'll work through that and honesty and stuff like that. I look forward to that. May God bless you. May he keep you. May his face shine upon you. May you experience his blessing, not because you deserve it or you earned it, but because he he paid the price in full for you to experience that. And keep these words in mind. I want you to go home and reflect on this. When he said to her, he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. When you understand what you have in him, that's what begins to transform your life. And you'll begin to live a life unlike ever before, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.